Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm Lucas Bagno, an investor here at Village. Today, I'm here with my co-host and co-founder of Village Global, Eric Torenberg, and a very special guest, Andrew Chen, a GP at A16Z. We're going to discuss Andrew's new book, The Code Star Problem. Before we get started, just a reminder that this discussion is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice or an offer or solicitation to buy any securities. And now, onto the show. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Hey. Thanks for having me. Andrew, we're here to, to talk about your, your new book, The Cold Start. Talk about why this book and, and why now. Yeah, the, I wrote The Cold Start Problem really because after 15 years of working in Bay Area, I, and, and, I, and I've written so many blog posts over the years. I think I've written almost a thousand blog posts on user growth and metrics and all this other stuff. I was like, okay, I need to do something to bring that all together into one cohesive story and idea. And what should I focus on? Well, I should focus on the what, what I really consider the secret to a lot of why the Bay Area's tech companies have been so successful and have gotten just so huge. And I think a lot of that has been because of the fact that really at their core, a lot of these products are really meant to connect people with each other, but in different ways. And so you have social media apps like Instagram and like WhatsApp that are really about connecting people for communication. You have products like Zoom and Dropbox and, and Slack, which are, are connecting people through collaboration um, and marketplaces like Airbnb and Uber, which are connecting buyers and sellers. And so when I think when you look at these kinds of companies, they, they just have this huge benefit of as soon as people, a lot of people are, are using the products, they just get more useful, the more users you add. And that network effect is what ends up propelling them into becoming these decabillion dollar companies. But with that comes all sorts of questions like, how do I get this network effect? It sounds awesome. Like, well, what are the, what are the challenges and problems in um, achieving them? And then also once you're scaling them and trying to amplify them, how do you do that? And then finally, for a, a lot of the larger companies, and I worked at Uber during some of the, some of the heyday years there, what you end up finding is as a, as a larger company, you're constantly under attack. There's always startups coming after you. There's always other bigger competitors. How do you compete in a world of network effects? And so the cold start problem is really meant to help the industry address that and to sort of be hopefully the definitive um, book on the topic. Awesome. Let's talk about the cold start problem and, and go deeper. Why don't you talk about the different stages of, of the cold start problem? Yeah. So what I ended up doing was really breaking it down into five different stages. And I did that for a, a really important reason, which is when you hear about, when you when you talk to all of these CEOs, and I interviewed a bunch of founders, folks from, from Tinder and Zoom and Slack and Dropbox and Twitch and Reddit and, and, and many of the, the companies that define the tech industry today. And when I talked to them and I asked them, how did, how did you guys get started? Every single one of them had a very, very, very different starting point. They all, you know, and, and we'll, we'll talk about some of these, but, you know, for example, in, in Tinder's case, they decided that even though they built all the right product features, they had the swipe in, they had the, you know, the profile photos, they had um, all the right features to make their, their mobile dating app a thing. When they were just telling their friends to come and use Tinder, their friends didn't, didn't want to. They couldn't get enough people on it at the same time. So they had to actually 
go and start a bunch of college parties, starting with one particular birthday party at USC and sponsoring it, putting in an awesome house, hiring bouncers to actually turn people away unless you had actually installed Tinder. And and you hear a story like that, and it's just so cool to hear like, wow, and then they got 500 users and they took over all of USC and then they just rinsed and repeat, repeated that strategy throughout. What, what, what the, a lot of these founders end up telling you is that a lot of the early solving the cold start problem days are actually very idiosyncratic. They all have different ways, clever ways of getting their first couple hundred users. And of course, you need to do that because in a network effects product, the good news is as more people use your product, it gets more valuable. The downside of that and really where, where the cold start problem really um, lives is that when there aren't enough people using a product, it means that it's not useful at all. And so what you see is you see a lot of companies solving this cold start problem in very different ways. And then once they are at the point where they are working on scaling the product, they are you know, amplifying the network effects, then those look a lot more common. You know, they, they look a lot more similar. They're building growth teams. They are going into growth marketing. They're thinking about re-engagement emails. They're doing a lot of more, you know, they're, they're expanding from different regions to international. They're doing a lot of different things. And then, and then what you find is then as they become a huge company, and there's only a few, of, you know, a couple dozen of these out there, they face their own unique challenges. If you're Facebook, you're dealing with regulatory challenges. You're dealing with, you know, troll and spam and all that stuff. If you're Uber, you're dealing with all sorts of things around, uh, you know, your drivers protesting or your your unit economics or you know whatever. And so, so, so re- really, this framework is meant to bring it all together in five stages: the cold start problem, the tipping point, escape velocity, where you're really, you know, really taking off. Then the ceiling, which is once you're big enough that you start to slow, you start to hit saturation. And then finally, the moat, which is where you're trying to build your competitive moat so that you're insulated from new entrants, and you can really build that monopoly that we're we're all in in, in this business to build. And Andrew, as I was reading the book over the weekend, I couldn't help to, to remember uh, Jeffrey's more user adoption co- curve with crossing the chasm. And it sounded to me that, you know, what you're doing with the cold start problem is a much more network folk, network effects centric approach to thinking about a lot of the, the, the same, you know, topics that w- with uh, user adoption that Jeffrey Moore, you know, mentioned back in the day. Is that a fair analogy on, on, on how you're thinking about it? Yeah, I have a huge amount of respect for crossing the chasm and uh, and Jeffrey Moore's work. And funny enough, he and I actually used to share an office way, way, way back in the day in, in 2007, 2008. Um, I worked at a different venture capital firm and he was actually a consultant at this venture capital firm. And so we we got to know each other through through that. And, and yes, I would say that his book, of course, was written in the 90s. It was very focused on enterprise. It was focused on you know this this world before social media, before viral growth, before a lot of that. And so a lot of his techniques and ideas are really about direct sales. It's about enterprise products. And so what I wanted to do is really modernize all of that to what we're dealing with today, which is on the on the B2B side, many of these products are consumer grade enterprise products. They grow because people love using the products. You know, if you're using Notion, you're using Airtable, you're using um, Dropbox and Zoom, it's because people think these products are great and they spread because of the network of users. People end up joining Slack instances because their coworkers are already on it. And they end up using Zoom because, because meeting organizers add, add them to the links. And then similarly, crossing the chasm, I think, you know, I, I, I share sort of a, you know, some similar thinking and really building that entire life cycle from, from the early days, from when, when a product is just an idea and taking it to market versus trying to scale it into, in, into the later stages of the market when you have to think about market saturation and dealing with incumbents and that kind of thing.
And you mentioned all the five different stages that you have in the book. Could you go a little bit in more depth on how the strategies around building and managing the the different network effects change as as the companies scale? Yeah, absolutely. Well, when people often quote Paul Graham's, you know, do things that don't scale essay from many years ago. And if you if you read that essay closely, he talks about something very specific, which is how important it is to manually onboard your customers in the early years, literally one by one. And, and that's something that you see really often. So for example, in, in the Slack story, what happened with Slack is they obviously, they, they, they started by a video game. They hired dozens of people. That video game, which was called Glitch, didn't work out. Stuart, in kind of a legendary pivot, actually uh, laid off almost everybody except for, I think, seven or eight people started from scratch, they had like an IRC server that they used because, because the company was actually very kind of remote for early on. And they turned that IRC server, they stripped out the IRC, they built the nice interface that we know as Slack today and launched it. And one of the big things that um, Stuart did in the early days, going back to doing things that don't scale, is to literally get his individual friends' startups onto using Slack and onboarding them one-on-one. And, and that's obviously you know set a, a precedent for many of the activities that we see today. And that's great. Here's the problem with throwing college parties and you know onboarding people one-on-one and doing all these amazing kind of early things, which is that eventually you get to a point where onboarding a couple hundred people a month, in the early days, that might mean that you're doubling your user base because you're off of a small number. Eventually, it's it it it's not even you you just can't grow faster than ten percent or five percent doing something that's that manual and so then what what you end up needing to do is first and I address this in sort of the tipping point section of 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 the of, of the book is to figure out how do you scale it repeatedly right so if you're Tinder what that means is you figured out that you can use a party to get get people at USC to download your 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 to download your app the next step is you have to then build an entire ambassador program and get this going at every single school. But then after you do that, then you need to start thinking about just growth marketing. You need to start thinking about your onboarding funnels. You need to start thinking about you know, all, all, all the things that we traditionally associate with growth teams, because those are the things that create the efficiencies at scale to be able to then continue to double or triple your business, even once it's at millions of users. You mentioned Tinder, you know, the, the college party and, and the college impact. What is it about colleges that has become such a fertile environment for, for some of these companies to, to start? Yeah, I, I think that for the same reason that you can onboard an individual team inside of a large company, and what you get with that is you get a lot of people that are all the same, you kind of, it's all a pretty kind of homogenous population. You kind of know they speak the same language, you know, they do, do, they do the same things. And that's within a company, you get that in colleges as well. And you get that in high schools as well. You get a you get a group of people who are hypersocial. They're all about the same demographic. And what that means is that if you're able to get your product to work and you're able to build what what I what I describe in the book as, as an atomic network, basically a stable network that can retain on its own, that can grow on its own. What that means is if you can build it in one place, you're very likely to be able to repeat that formula and build it in a second place or a third place and a fourth place. And if you can do that, just kind of you know, proof by induction, you can probably do it in a hundred places or a thousand places and like off you go. And, and so, so I think that is why, what, what, as I thought through this, why this solves kind of a really interesting, I think, mystery of tech companies, which is that we often see these tech companies starting in these little tiny niches, they, you know, eBay starting in collectibles, 
or you know Facebook starting at Harvard or you know Dropbox starting with the kind of hacker news community or Twitch starting with with the kind of nerd community in in San Francisco and 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 how it replicates and how it grows over time as opposed to watching huge companies try to announce products very very broadly across a lot of different markets a lot of different users if you if you remember Google announcing Google Plus and trying to get everyone in the world to use their their social networking service why that's actually such a weak approach and it's a weak approach is because you get this very scattered network that's disconnected in a world where by by design as if 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 you if you believe in the theories in this book that density is rewarded stability is rewarded interconnectedness is rewarded over anything else and so I think that's why um, s- startups have been at such a huge advantage in in making this work. And and part of how they make it work is they start in really small places like colleges, and they're not afraid to get 500 users and call that a success. Versus if you are a product manager at a fang company and you just got 500 users, that's like you know your project's about to get canceled. You know like that's that's like you got to hit huge, huge, huge OKRs in your in, in your in your company in order to to justify it inside of a, a big organization like that. And Andrew, you've been such a student of all of these different tactics over the years. I'll be curious: are there tactics that you found that worked really well, you know, 10, 15 years ago that today don't work anymore? And, you know, perhaps are there tactics that you think work really well today, but you think are seeing their final and maybe five years from now won't work as well as well anymore? Yeah, that, that's that's a that's a fantastic question. So so I have this this concept that I've been writing about for years, which is the law of shitty click-throughs. Okay. And the law of shitty click-throughs basically says that no matter what marketing channel you start with, and I and I use banner ads as an example of this. So banner ads were actually invented in the late 90s in the original dot-com bubble. And the very first banner ads had insane click-through rates, like 70% click-through rates, just crazy. And they were on a predecessor to the wired.com homepage. And, uh, but what you find is you find obviously 20 plus years later that now banners are, are, have click-through rates of like 0.2, 0.3% click-through rates on average across the industry. And you've seen that with email, you've seen that with a bunch of things. In the era of, of Web 2.0, a lot of Web 2.0, and this is a huge difference between the, the social apps that are being built now versus the Web 2.0 apps that were being built 10 years ago, is in the Web 2.0 era, it was very, very much about email address books. You would use email address books to spam people and you get all these invites going. And that's how these products like, like everything from MySpace to High Five and Tagged and, and even Facebook and LinkedIn were really built on email address books in the first place. These days, if you're building a new app, well, no one wants to give you permissions to their to their email uh, contacts for you to go spam. And then now the, the now the sort of what they call bacon, which is you know somewhere between you know a spam and, and 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 email, is now very carefully filtered by all the major email providers. And so that is now much much harder to pull off. And I think what you see is you see a lot more authentic engagement driving growth as opposed to you know email spam. And then and then and then Lucas, to your question about. Um, you know, things that are working now versus later. Well, I think we're part of the creator economy and part of the golden age of what's happening right now is there is a massive battle to be like the link in bio company. If you can be the link in bio, that means you are the primary link. You're probably the primary livelihood of that creator. And so what that means is if you're a writer, a company like Substack that I'm on the board of, it, becomes the thing that that is very very sticky 
And, 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 and if they get that position, it becomes hard to dislodge them because again, it's a subscription product. And so why would you, why would you turn that off? And, but, but I think that's only going to last for a period of time. I think we're seeing a lot of really, really interesting companies emerge that are going to do that. But eventually all that real estate is going to be claimed. If you want a, a writer, you're going to put Substack on there. If you are a um, musician, you're going to put Patreon. If you are another kind of content creator, you're going to put OnlyFans and, and, you know, for everyone else, you're going to put maybe beacons. And then all of a sudden, creators won't have as much of an incentive and nor ability in real estate to be able to promote these companies. And so I think that's going to be the natural cycle of, I think the creator economy actually starting to plateau is when that maturity level, that sort of creator go-to-market has been tapped out and the, and the law of shitty click-through starts to take over. That's fascinating. There's two very interesting segues from what you mentioned that, that we would love to dive deeper into. One is Web3 that, that we're going to get to in a moment. But you mentioned all the linking bio startups um, and these sectors that tend to get quite hot. And you know, th there's this interesting phenomenon that, as you mentioned, when you know sometimes these things happen at the same time and there's a thousand startups kind of doing the same thing at the same period in time. I've heard another really amazing investor say that there are sectors that he thinks are amazing for Series A or Series B uh, investments, but not as much for seed investments because there's a thousand startups flowing in at the same time and it gets really hard to differentiate. I'll be curious, do you in your role have investing uh, in multi-stage, do you agree with that? Or how, how, do you, how do you think about differentiating when there's a thousand companies mm -hmm. building the same thing? Yeah. Well, I, th I think embedded within that is a, a, a very core transition that happened in the last few decades of venture capital, which is we had a period in venture capital, early venture capital was all about technical risk. It was actually really, really hard to build anything. It was really hard to build a website because back in the day, you didn't have, uh, you didn't have, you know, open source. You didn't have Apache. You didn't have, uh, you know, all these, all these. Uh, you didn't have cloud computing. You didn't have any of these things. And so, to build even a website was was a big deal. And a lot of folks were also building um, actual silicon, or they were building, you know, hard disks, and they were building these things that were actually technically hard, even though the market for these things was very obvious. Past about. 2005, especially kind of into the Web 2.0 era, technical different, you know, technical defensibility dropped away, and it was completely. It's all about market risk now. It's all about like, will people actually use the thing? We can build anything that we can imagine, and we can probably build any app or any idea for just a couple hundred thousand dollars, probably. And the question is really just, okay, well, can you actually make this successful in the market? Can you get traction in the market? And I think that 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 transition probably happened in like 2005 or you know something like that, plus or minus. And so because of that, I think for investors, it is really, really, really difficult to evaluate the concept, the idea of many of these um, of, of, of these startups that are running out there, even if the teams themselves are fantastic. And so some of the some of the heuristics, I, I really admire my colleague Connie Chan who does a lot of geographic arbitrage in her ideas, because what she does is she actually studies the Chinese market. She looks at what has worked really, really well in China and what are some human behaviors that have really been clearly exhibited and does it make sense to invest in the US version, right? And, and being able to arbitrage. And that, and that leads to what seem like novel ideas that are actually, that, that you can just invest in at purely the idea stage and off you go. And then I think the other version is we often end up engaging entrepreneurs and founders that we just think are fantastic and the idea matters a lot less. But if you are in a world, I, I completely agree, Lucas, that if you are in a world where you're just trying to judge the idea for something, especially when half the examples that I give in the book are examples where they just pivot, you know, 
a year in. What that tells you, it's very, very hard to invest just on the ideas. And what I end up doing in a lot of my job is to really try to evaluate the quality of the traction and to really evaluate for evidence of network effects, which you can do in the data, which I think is very interesting. And if you can do that, then you're much, much more likely to pick a winner that then goes the distance. And and, and say more about the, or give the TLDR, what you look for in the data to determine, hey, is this, you know, is this sustainable retention or, or, is, or is this, you know, something sustainable growth or what are you looking yeah. for? Yeah, I think well, I think I think the, the the TLDR on that is what I primarily am looking for is is not just that it's a marketplace company or it's a social company or it's communication product because I think all of those inherently conceptually will have network effects. So the question is, can you look in the data? And I think the way that you look in the data is you're trying to figure out are there multiple networks that coexist in in the overall network today. So if you think about Uber. Right, Uber is a network of networks. It's not just one giant network. It's actually San Francisco, and even San Francisco is actually the city versus Berkeley and the East Side versus the Peninsula. If you look inside of a network for Slack, it's not just the overall network. It's actually company by company by company. And so, so Eric, what what I end up doing is I end up trying to separate out when there is data, when there is traction, all the all the various subsets of cities or teams or just sub-networks that exist and try to compare all the networks to each other. And what you'd like to see is that that the cities or the teams or the individuals that have more connections are just and just end up being better retained or more engaged or more active than the ones that don't. And if you can if you can show that that let's say a user with 10 connections on the network is even more engaged than someone who has two and somebody who has 50 connections on the network is even more engaged then what that means is as long as you can show that over time you, that you believe the network is going to get filled out, it's going to become more dense over time, then that allows you to bet on an, on an ongoing increase in retention and in engagement. And it becomes a way to sort of, it, it becomes a counter to the law of shitty click-throughs because it, it becomes one of the only reasons why a product might be, be, be actually more sticky and more engaging over time. Yeah. Segwaying a little bit, what didn't make the book either because you didn't have time or, or you released the book too early and, and the world's changing. <laughs> you write the forward in you know five years or re-release the book. Like, what do you expect? Oh, well, I mean, the, the really obvious one is, uh, is, is Web3. I mean, the, that's the really obvious one because I, I started writing it and I was like, okay, I'm going to figure out how to get Bitcoin and Ethereum into this thing. And then I was like, should I put anything else? And I was like, you know, the problem is every week it's changing. Every week it's changing. And so whatever cool company I put in here is going to feel like it's archaic. And so I've, I've opted to uh, leave a lot of the Web3 things out, even though, as, as all of us know, I mean, Web3, the, the great thing about it is it is really, it, it, it is really network effects driven. The reason why everybody finds Bitcoin valuable is because everyone else finds it. Valuable, and the and the, and the reason why people think uh, board ape is valuable versus a uh, crypto punk versus something else is because other people. So it's very self-referential in a way that where, where there's a network. So I, I I would be very excited to one day revisit all of this and and actually study how a lot of these NFT projects, for example, have solved the cold start problem by doing everything from these airdrops to you know all the like discord you know community management kind of stuff that folks have done it's been very very cool to watch the board apes team go from having board apes proper to then you know having the dogs and having the mutants and having all the different things and and basically taking a network that's working and 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 augmenting it over time and growing their network over time the same way that a marketplace like eBay 
started in collectibles and then add music and movies and 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 again all all using using the same networks building momentum using the same network and so i think what we're going to find in in web3 is is that's going to be interesting i also actually was going to write a whole chapter because i have a part in the book which is about the ceiling which is about market saturation and trolls and spam and context collapse which is the idea that like you, you make a piece of content and then Eventually, if if you get in a world where everyone in your network sees it, including your boss, including your mom and dad, then then that collapses your context. It's no longer just about your friends. And so then you get more and more shy about posting content, which means the content per daily active user starts to decline over time, which is something that you see across many, many networks, including actually, by the way, workplace networks. Like People are less active in Slack as more and more people can see their messages. And so one of the one of the chapters I wanted to add in that actually was sort of regulatory, which is just, you know, once you get really, really big, then actually the government gets involved um, and starts to have a lot of interest in what you're doing. And we've seen that obviously in the labor laws for a lot of the marketplace companies. We've seen with obviously all the all the all the censorship issues related to the social networks. And that's another thing that I I, I started to write and I was like, ah, maybe, maybe, maybe I'll leave this out. Maybe this is a good conversation for a podcast one day. So, Andrew, on the topic of Web3, you, you mentioned a lot of things that are similar in the context of network effects. I would be curious, perhaps with the exception of tokens, are there other things that you're seeing today in Web3 related to the co-star problem, related to network effects that you think is just different than most Web2 startups? Yeah, I, I think that the mechanics around the economic ownership model uh, really changes the game. Because if, if, you, if you think about it, if you go back to a lot of the social media products, and 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 they'll also use Dropbox as kind of the B2B, you know, kind of counterexample of this as well. Why are people using Instagram? I mean, ultimately, you're building this following for Instagram, you're generating a lot of revenue, but that revenue goes primarily to the company. And as a content creator, you're working for for social feedback, you're working for all those, all those likes and all those hearts and all those follows. And potentially, if you're large enough, you can get brand sponsorships. And so, and so a lot of a lot of the early cold start problem ends up being focused around understanding that social feedback loop and amplifying it. Dropbox was really about utility in the early days and making it so that you can just use the product primarily just to back up your own computer. I used it initially to sync my work and home computer so that I would have the same files on both. And that was a very legitimate use case. But I think Web3 is very, very different than both of those. It's not about social feedback. It's not about utility, but actually fundamentally, you're able to build an economic model from, from day one. And I think that really changes the game because what it means is that there's yet another reason, maybe in addition to having fun, maybe in addition to utility, maybe in addition to social feedback, that you would actually engage these products. And so if you imagine a new, you know, playing playing one of these new crypto gaming companies like, like Axie Infinity, you can collect the axes and just do it purely for appreciation. And so instead of sort of, I have a chapter on, on come for the tools, stay for the network, you might actually come for the economic game and for the economic value and then stay for the actual multi-user gameplay. And that's a very different set of tools that it allows you to do. I think we're also just in very, very early days on this. Um, one of the one of the features at Uber that rolled into one of my teams was the referral program. So if you ever used like a give ten dollars get ten dollars, Uber actually at, at I don't know where it is now, but but when I was there, we were spending three hundred million dollars a year on giving and getting. And that referral program is incredibly powerful. But it's even more powerful that when people own a token, that they naturally evangelize it. And how how soon are we going to be able to eventually also 
be able to build these new novel incentive programs, new referral programs that are going to be purely based on, you know, based on on Web3 technologies. I think it's going to be really, really interesting. So I think we're very, very early. I think a lot of the, a lot of what we've seen so far is a groundswell of like community engagement, but I'm very excited for a lot of the Web2 like growth teams to make their way over and start to rethink go-to-market once we're kind of in a world where, you know, that that all the Web3 stuff is going to, we're kind of in a natural kind of peak of excitement right now. And then I think we're going to, you know, back, back, if you guys remember back in the day in 2007, when we were all installing, you know, iPhone apps, every single time there was a cool app, we'd all install it, right? And eventually that started to slow down and slow down and slow down. And I don't know the last time that I installed a new app and put it on my home screen. We're going to go through that same phase, I think, with Web3. And I think in the middle and late stages of this, people are going to become a lot more sophisticated about using growth techniques to grow their Web3 apps beyond just you know announcing it on, on Twitter and reaping the benefits. Yeah. Maybe some sort of product hunt for Web3. Yeah. That, that's, a, that's a great idea, Eric. <laughs> I think someone should do that. Exactly. Yeah. So I want to segue into a couple of big questions and I'll let you take it wherever, wherever is of interest. So one, the, the, the broader, what I'm trying to get at is where are you excited to invest today? What, what's your request for startups? And to maybe help direct you a bit in, in case this is uh, of interest is you, you, you had this excellent presentation a couple of years ago of what's next to consumer and, and where you're excited to, to, to make some bets in consumer and, and you've made a bunch of, bunch of bets since. I'm curious how, if you were redoing that presentation today, you know, after the pandemic, what, what's, what would be different or, or, or how would you redo, redo some of that or where are you excited right now? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I love doing that presentation. And I think in, in many ways, it's still quite relevant. I talk about, I talk about video in there. I talk about the new, new social formats in there. And, and it was actually the presentation that I created literally, I think, in the first six months of the new job when I joined Andrews and Horowitz. And so it, it is a really fun to go back and look at that, you know, versus now to see kind of uh, what's in there. And, 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 and funny enough, of course, like there's no, there's no Web3 in there, which, which tells you a, a little bit about, uh, you know, what the world was like in 2000, 2018. So I think if I were to start from scratch today, I think, I think if to, to, to use the, the, the collection of, of all the buzzwords, right? I think what you would say is you'd say first, I'm very interested in, in what's currently being put under the umbrella of metaverse, but just to de- decompose that a little bit. I think that every generation has its own social network. And I grew up in the AOL Instant Messenger days and other folks grew up in the Zanga Live Journal, you know, whatever days and MySpace and so on. And other people did a Facebook and other people did, you know, these days it's, it's Snapchat and it's, it's Instagram and so on. And I think if you go back and, and, and look at what young people are doing, I think that gives you a clue of what the future is going to be like. And what you see is that if you are 10 years old, you, where do you spend your time talking to your friends? Where do you spend your time hanging out with your friends? Well, it's inside of games. It's inside of 3D uh, real-time environments like Minecraft, like Roblox, like Fortnite. And I think it's very clear that, you know, when, when, when those kids get access to, when, they're fi- they're, when, they're, when their parents finally allow them to get access to apps where there's feeds and photos and whatever, they might think it's boring. You know, if they've been like, you know, running around Mars, like shooting their friends and like building castle, you know, building huge buildings and like doing all, maybe they're going to find feeds and static photos, like really, really boring. I think that's very possible. 
And so I think that's that's very exciting. And then obviously the intersection of that and being able to own virtual goods. There's already virtual goods, right? People are debating right now. Well, you know, why why are people buying these virtual goods? Well, in a world where you know Epic makes several billion dollars selling virtual dances and custom skins for their characters and for custom guns and so on, it's much much more obvious that that can that that can be a thing. So I think Met- metaverse is I think a really exciting just general area. The second is and 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 I see that as kind of a continuation of where social networks need. To go like we're not going to live in this format as it sits forever. We're gonna we're gonna evolve it, and so maybe that becomes the obvious you know way. The other one that that I'm very interested in, and 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 we and we coined a, a similarish term called the passion economy, which then I think the creator economy actually took over. But I actually still really really like the passion economy, and and the reason that that Lee Jin and I worked on this concept of the passion economy is that the passion economy says no matter what you're excited about in life. No matter what you're passionate about in life, the internet basically unlocks so much of a market, such a huge market size, that you should be able to do anything that you want in your life. And there should be your thousand true fans, or 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 maybe even your your hundred true fans, you know, paying you a lot of money, and you should be able to make a living off of that. And I think that that has turned into everything from obviously being a content creator and all this other stuff, but also includes you know caring for seniors, you know, b- being being excited about the arts, being excited about you know about about writing and Substack and all that. I mean, I think these are all interesting examples of this is what the new next generation of work will look like, and and that'll be great. And then and then we I think we've covered the kind of web three enough, but I do think that certainly we're, it feels like this is the wave that kind of brings us over. And I think it, it, you know, a lot of these new computing platforms often start with games. And so I think this is the wave where in particular in my inbox, it's full of decks from people making, creating new game studios that all have NFTs that all are doing, you know, play to earn as part of it. And as a result, I think that that may push us into, into the next, you know, into the next wave, which, which would be fantastic. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. Where does video pl- play a role? You think, or, or what does that look like? Yeah, well, I think I think video and 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 audio. Obviously, we're I'm I'm on the board of uh, Clubhouse, and and that's all been very interesting. I think I think where that comes in is is that we have first the the idea that social plus video is just one company. I think we can rule that out categorically, but that's not true. Like you have social. And then what you have is you have different kinds of video. You have long-form video. That's that's uh you know that that's that's Netflix. That's pieces of YouTube. That's that's pieces of, of a bunch of these. You have clips. You know that's like that's like YouTube. You have TikTok. That's you know these dances, these short short-form videos. You have stories, which is you know very very much a, a person-to-person thing. And so I think each one of these formats actually will have many many different contexts, and you'll be able to build great companies inside of any of these contexts. That's why I think. You know, as much as Clubhouse, I think, is investigating many, many different aspects of the social plus audio kind of phenomenon, I think there's going to be a lot of winners in that space. I think there's going to be there's going to be something that's much more long form and professional. There's going to be something that's much more conversational and feel like chat. There's going to be a lot of these different you know flavors flavors of these. And and I think it's important to keep innovating on these. The, these media formats because Eugene Way in his in his writing has often referenced this. Oftentimes these large ossified uh, social networks they end up with kind of an old money problem where because of because of the, the the feedback loops that are built into the product if you're early in the system and you become a creator with millions of followers you keep getting millions of followers and and the system just keeps going and going and going and so if you are new in the system instead of trying to get on on YouTube 
and trying to build the same kinds of videos as everybody else and to have the same thumbnails with your mouth open and like big, you know, thick characters like everyone else, you're just better off going to TikTok. You're just better off going to TikTok and trying to build something completely new. Or you're you're better off, you know, learning how to make memes and you know doing that. And so so I am very excited about the the, the new platforms that are potentially out there to for people to specialize in these formats because it solves the old money problem in many cases. And it lets a new a new upstart kind of cherry pick an audience that may be dissatisfied with what they're getting on one of these mega networks. I think uh, that, that's a great place to, to wrap. Our, our guest today has been Andrew Chen, uh, partner at A16Z. The book is The Cold Start Problem. If you enjoyed uh, what you heard today, there's a lot more in, in the book. Uh, Andrew, thanks so much for coming on the show. Awesome. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Lucas. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.